Well, it's good to see everyone this morning and to worship with you all. Uh, it's a wonderful time of uh, coming together in the name of the Lord for all of us, especially on Sunday as God has called the church to gather uh, once a week uh, in congregation, or more than once a week as a congregation. I'm thankful that we as a church have multiple uh, times which we gather as church uh, throughout the week, and Sunday being the culmination of, uh, of it all. And so we're in First Timothy. Uh, we're, uh, as we gather, we're actually going to read God's Word and to uh, understand what God's instructions to us as a church. So we've been in First Timothy for the last few weeks. We have started a new uh, passage, a new book, and I want to invite all of you guys to turn to First Timothy as the book which our study will be about this morning. First Timothy chapter 1, and we're in verse 7 through 11, and it says, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, slavers, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful that we get to come before your word and, and learn from it. And, and we know, Lord, that this passage is a, is a specific passage about a specific topic, um, namely to combat false teachers. But we know also, God, that this is uh, especially important for us because we, know, we need to know what the truth is uh, before we can even combat what is false. And so we pray that we would know more and more about the truth of God this morning and, uh, and that we would be affirmed in our own hearts, Lord, that this is the truth of the gospel as we worship you through the study of your, of your word. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How would you introduce yourself? Say if you are in a neighborhood party and uh, someone comes to ask you and say who you are and ask you the question about who you are and uh, ask you to give a little uh, introduction to who you are as you would, likely to, would like for them to know, where would you start? Would you start by saying about your job? Say what you do from day to day? Would you talk about your day-to-day -day work? Or perhaps if you are not necessarily working in a nine-to-five job and you're a stay-at-home mom, would you tell this person about the fact that you're a stay-at-home mom? Or perhaps you're a student and that you would tell this person about the fact that you go to school at a so-and-so school and these are the things which you would begin with as far as telling another person about yourself. But would these things be enough? Would these things truly describe you? Maybe you would go a little bit deeper. Maybe you would say, well, this is my hobby, and I'm a basketball player. I love playing sports. I love watching football, or I love arts. I love drawing. And, and perhaps this would be enough to tell another person about yourself. Or perhaps you would go even deeper and tell this person, say, if you're really vulnerable and really personal, to tell this person about your struggles, about your ambitions in life, about your wants and about your desires, 
And if you do so, would you have fully told another person about yourself? Well, even though you may tell these things to other people, the reality is that everything you tell to another person would change over time. Your personality could change over time. Your job could change over time. Your wants and your desires could change over time. There's perhaps one thing that you could tell another person about yourself that really truly describe you, and actually that is your relationship with God. A.W. Tozer once said something that was very profound in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said these words, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is profound. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What other people know about you actually isn't so much about you, but rather what you know and what you feel about God. That is what truly defines you. And the reason why that is the case is because God has made us in His image according to His likeness. We see this very clearly in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, and that's what, that's what God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We were made in the image of God. We we're made to follow God. And our perception of God is utterly important in this case because who we think God is defines who we are, defines who we will be. And God is holy. God is just. We believe that He is our God. Certainly there is a pursuit of justice and holiness and purity in our lives. But you see, in the very beginning, we also had a misconception of God. See, Satan came to us and tempted us and said, you can be your own God. You don't need to have God as God of your life. You can be your own God. He said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, if you disobey God and if you discount God, and you can be your own God and you can know your own good and evil. You can make decisions for yourself and live your own life without God over you, and that was the story. And that was the beginning of this sinful world because as we propagated into that life, life was not better, but life was worse, far worse. When we sought ourselves to be God, when we made ourselves to be the image of God, there's sins of every kind in this world. Sin of selfishness, sin of our own wants and desires instead of Glorifying God, we seek to glorify ourselves and, and pursue our own dreams instead of pursuing the goal which God has set for us. Instead of following Him, we're now following ourselves and, and, and what we want. As a result, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are the sinful tendency of man's hearts as we walked away from the holiness of God. We pursue that. As we pursue that, there are things, and these are the things which are destroying us and destroying this world. Sin is what is destroying us and destroying our relationships around us. Our God, however, even though that's the reality of our lives, has not ceased to present Himself to us in all His purity, in all His holiness, and that is why He gave us the Bible. The Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the law of God, has determined to us and for us the character of God. 
His holiness, His righteousness. According to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He's holy, He's just, He's right. And the reality also is that we are not. In fact, Solomon said in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, there's no one who does not sin. Everyone sins, and we are all under the judgment of God because God is just and He will judge. But you see, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the Word of God is that God also is mercy. And this is shown through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is God, came to earth, who lived a perfect life, a perfect life as man. He lived not for himself because he is God, but rather he lived it for us. He lived it so that he could represent us to God. He could be the mediator between us and God. He could atone for us. He gave his perfect righteous life to you and to me if we believe unto him so that we may be perfect before God. That he took our punishment for us on the cross as he suffered the wrath of God for us. But then that did not conquer him because he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. He is God. And if you believe unto him, we shall also inherit the same power that he, which he had, which is that we shall also conquer sin and conquer death. We shall forever be with God forever. That is the gospel. Amen. That is the message of Scripture. <laughs> However, as we know from the story of Scripture, and also in our lives, there are people twisting this message. The Bible has many information in it. Some of it are more familiar than others, and some are more obscure than others. And what false teachers have sought to do is to create their own theology, create their own teaching by taking some of the obscure facts of the Bible and twisting that to be about their own agenda, their own teaching, to draw followers after themselves. And this is exactly what we're going to see here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 through 11, in which Paul is combating false teachers. And these false teachers are not obvious false teachers because they're using some portions of Scripture, some portions of the Bible, but they're twisting it, they're misusing it for their own glory, for their own purposes, for their own agenda, rather than pointing to Christ, who is the ultimate point of the Bible. And so as we study this, we're seeing false teachers misusing God's Word, we're also going to see true teachers of God rightfully using God's Word. But let's look at the first point, which, that, which is that there are false teachers. There are false teachers in this world which are misusing God's Word according to their own agenda. And those are the people we need to reject. Let's read in verse 7. It says this. There are those who desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things which they make confident assertions. Now, as we come to the book of 1 Timothy, what we're finding out is Paul writing to a young protege named Timothy. Paul is a spiritual teacher. He has been in ministry for more than two decades now by this time of writing 1 Timothy, and he's been an apostle. He's been a spiritual father to many. His ministry started in the very beginning when Paul was called by God in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, saying that Paul himself is a chosen instrument of mine that is of God's to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's God's call for Paul. Paul is to faithfully proclaim the gospel to all. 
But as he does so, what we found out is that not only is Paul proclaiming the gospel, that is the content of the gospel, he's also been fighting against false teachers who have been proclaiming a different gospel. In fact, throughout all of Paul's letters, you will inevitably find some letter or some word in which he says to the church who is writing to, to ignore or to warn or to admonish false teachers among them, to reject them. So, for example, to the Ephesian church, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says to take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He's talking to the people in the church, saying there are people in the church who are having unfruitful works of darkness. These are false teachers. <clears throat> Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul writes to the church at Rome, saying to them, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, and avoid them. The teachers who are among them that are causing divisions and obstacles, and Paul is teaching the Roman church to avoid these people. And also Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul warns the church of Philippi to look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are the people who propose a different kind of gospel, the gospel in which they have to be circumcised, and these are false teachers, false teachers which Paul is warning the church about. So throughout Paul's ministry, Paul has been warning time after time again against false teachers that have been infiltrating the church. And he's not doing this alone. You see, throughout the day, throughout the way, actually, he had picked up a young protege, and his name was Timothy. Timothy was a young protege, a young man, much compared to Paul, years younger, perhaps 20 years younger, and Paul's been in the ministry, and in the middle of Paul's ministry, during Paul's second missionary journey, Paul picked up this man in Acts chapter 16, verse 2, and this man was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. His name was Timothy. Timothy was a young man and who was willing to serve, willing to come alongside Paul, willing to learn. And so Paul was very much willing to teach this young man to teach the gospel, to preach the right doctrine, as well as to fight against and combat against false teachers who are influencing the churches in negative ways. And so throughout Paul's second missionary journey, we see Paul sending Timothy to uh, Berea, to Thessalonica, while Paul went to Athens. Again, it was because there were false teachers. The Jews were there infiltrating the church, which had established by Paul, had been established, that is. And there are ministry opportunities in Paul's third missionary journey, which Paul sent Timothy to Corinth, and there Paul is again combating the false teachers there, and also Paul sent Timothy to Philippi, and Paul's fourth missionary journey, again, this was to, for the purpose of combating false teachers as well as to encourage the church at Philippi. So Timothy has been with Paul through Paul's missionary journeys as Paul combat false teachers, and Timothy has been faithful. But now the time has changed. The time has passed. And this is no longer Paul's second, third, or fourth missionary journey. In fact, the time of 1 Timothy is in a time where Paul had been released from prison. Paul had been released. This is perhaps when we count Paul's fifth missionary journey. Paul's been released, and now he's arriving in Ephesus along with Timothy, and the place of the church Ephesus has largely changed. When Paul first left the church, the church had been faithful. But Paul knew, Paul knew that this is not going to be the reality years down the line. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 to 30, Paul warned the church while he left the church and met them at Miletus. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, 
not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. There will be people who arise from among you, and they will draw people after them, and these are the false teachers. And Paul was speaking this five years ago. When Paul just left this church, now five years later, Paul is coming back to this church, the church of Ephesus, and this indeed has happened. People have drawn others away after themselves, away from the gospel. And we saw this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul is urging Timothy now as Timothy is left at Ephesus, and now he's the pastor of this church as a man perhaps is 35 years old, and he's really stepping into ministry as a senior pastor, as he's ready. And Paul saw this man as ready man, as Paul is an older man now, ready to end his ministry as this man is about to start saying to Timothy, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Saying there's a doctrine which you've been teaching. There's a particular doctrine which you've been proclaiming. And you're to charge any individual who does not teach this doctrine which we have been proclaiming to not to teach doctrines that are different from that. What is the doctrine Paul has been proclaiming? We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4. Paul says, this is the doctrine. This is what I've been delivered, and this is what I'm delivering to you. What I delivered to you as a first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. That is the gospel. That is the message. That is the doctrine which Paul has been proclaiming. That is true. That is the main thing. That is the purpose of Scripture. That is the point of Bible which is that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again for us. That is the doctrine. That is the gospel. However, for the false teachers at Ephesus, what they've been doing is they've been teaching a different doctrine. What we see is that they've been teaching in verse 4, or Timothy verse 4, it says they've been devoting themselves to myth and endless genealogies. What is myth and endless genealogies? What they've been doing is that they have been taking obscure portions of Scripture, parts of Scripture that perhaps people don't know, parts of Scriptures perhaps people haven't studied, whether it been feast days, whether it been dates, whether it been about the, uh, certain laws which nobody really studied or knew. They're making them about the main things rather than about Christ. We see that in our days as well. That's how cults start. They say, well, you cannot worship on a certain day. Or they say they cannot eat certain things or Christians shouldn't eat certain things. And they're forming this cult, this body, this, this, this following around them, thinking that they're better than others because they follow these things. And others are thinking they're better than other Christians because they follow these things. While they totally miss the point, which is that it's all about Jesus and not about what they do. All these laws and sacrifices and dates and numbers in the Bible actually points to God points to Christ and not to themselves. But for these false teachers, they really focused on something else. It says in verse 4, they focused on myth and genealogies. What happens back in those days is that they have myth, Jewish fables, things as the book of Jubilee or the book of the writings of Enoch. The book of Enoch wasn't written by Enoch. It was written by somebody else pretending to be Enoch. And the book of Jubilee, you have conversations about angels who are having conversation with the people in the genealogies. And certainly you read through the genealogies of the Bible, the certain people in there, many people in there, actually most people in there, you have no idea who they are. But these Jewish fables, they make imagined stories about them. Imagine 
myth about them saying, well, they did this and they did that, and they had conversation with the angels about this, and this is why this came about and that came about, and they are proliferating these myths and these imagined stories, and as they do so, they're gaining a following for themselves. They're not focusing on Christ. They're focusing on themselves. They're focusing on their own teaching, their own theology, their own bent on certain understanding of, of, of Jewish knowledge or, or of, of Scripture, which is not true. And Paul says you need to recognize them. And the way you recognize them is by the very fact that they're not putting the main thing as the main thing. What is the main thing? We saw this in verse 4, stewardship from God, that is by faith. It's about you offering your gifts to God. It's about you offering your heart to God. It's about offering your, your, your sacrifices of service unto the Lord because you love Jesus. You love Christ for what He has done for you. That's the main thing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, God commanded us that as each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We're to serve God, we're to give God our all because of the gospel, because of what God's done for us in saving us from our sins. But the false teachers, again, they do not care about that. They are just really there to proliferate their own theology, their own teaching, their own influence. We're to watch out against them. Another main thing was love from the pure heart. We saw this in verse 5. See, as we are believers now, we're called to love God and love others. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 38, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no complicacy to this. This is not complicated. This is not complex. This is not requiring to know Jewish fables and myths. This is really just pouring out of our love for the Lord because we love Jesus for what He has done for us. This is the main thing. In fact, we're to practice this love to such a degree that we even love our enemies. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, we're to love our enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be like the sons of Most High for His kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. This is what it means to live as Christians. It's not about knowing the special knowledge and special facts and obscure knowledge in Scripture in the Old Testament nobody knows, but rather it's about practicing these really simple truth, this simple life of love for others. It's hard, it's, it's hard to do, but yet it is simple. And this is the main thing about what it means to follow God. Another thing which is the main thing is good conscience. We're to live our lives in good conscience before God is something is said also in verse 5. Conscience is something which God's given to us to be alarmed in our hearts for us. If you've done something that is wrong, the conscience should tell you that. If you're doing something that is good, your conscience should give you confidence in the fact that you are doing something that is good. And when you became a believer, your conscience now is conformed to the will of God, to the Word of God. Your conscience is even more sharpened. We're to live according to our conscience, in fact, were to live according to a good conscience. Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, I live my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. We're to live in good conscience before God. That is what it means to be a believer. It's not knowing these obscure notions of Old Testament facts and Old Testament myths. 
but it's to live in good conscience before God and following Him. And lastly, what we saw was a sincere faith. In verse 5, would you have a sincere faith before God? That means that everything we do for God is not for others to see. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 6. Whether you give, whether you pray, whether you fast, do it what? In secret, right? That's the whole point of Matthew chapter 6. So for example, in the giving, Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus said, so that you're giving what? Maybe in secret, give so that only God sees. If you know that what you do is something which nobody else knows, but only God knows, and you're doing it, and you're satisfied in doing it for that reason, then you know that your faith is sincere. That is what it means to live in sincere faith. Of course, the false teachers, they don't care about this. They're about others looking at them. They're about their influence, they're about their special knowledge of Old Testament obscure facts or Jewish myth. They're not looking at the main thing as the main thing. And so what Paul is saying to us is that don't be deceived by these people. Your simple, uncomplicated faith in Christ, living for Jesus with full of love for God and for others is what you should be pursuing. It's the main thing. What others, he said in verse 7, are without understanding either what they're saying or of the things which they make confident assertions. They don't know what they're talking about, yet they sound confident. They sound like they know what they're talking about. They sound like they have great motivation, great confidence, great logic. They sound like they could keep on talking and talking and talking, and the more they say it, the more it sounds like it's true. But Paul says, if you know that they're not focusing on Jesus, then don't listen to them at all. Because again, they're making confident assertions on things which have no idea they're talking about. They have no idea. I remember when I was growing up, and this is in high school, it was back in the 90s, and I listened to this man. His name was Harold Camping. I don't know if you know about him. He was known for his end-time predictions. He had this radio station called Family Radio, and, and, and I was, uh, when I was first listening to him, I was actually encouraged by it because I loved, loved growing in the Lord and growing theology. And I was uh, coming back home, and around 5 o'clock or so, I would turn on this radio station. They have this thing called Open Forum, where people are calling in, asking questions about God, about Christian living, about salvation, about uh, end-time theology, and he would answer them. And I was just a believer uh, for a couple of years at that point, and I was listening to him, and I was learning a lot because I, I didn't even know that you could have so many questions about the Bible. And certainly, I did not know that there are answers to these questions about the Bible. As I was growing, I was listening to him, I bought some of his books, and I was reading him, I was studying him. But then he had a problem. His problem was that he loved to predict end times, the date, when Jesus is going to come back again, specifically. He did that one time, he failed, Jesus didn't come back. But you see, this man loved doing it over and over again. He was an engineer, he said, prior to him becoming a radio host, and so he loved adding numbers together. The way he does it, he says, you know what, I, I, I want to see how all these numbers work out in the Bible. He sees a pattern. He says, well, there are numbers in pattern according to Jewish feasts and Jewish days of celebration, Jewish calendars. And there are certain days that you come together, and there are certain symbolic numbers in which certain numbers mean something in the Bible. For example, the five number means Atonement. Ten means completeness. Seventeen means heaven. 
So he would just put all these numbers together in his own ways, and somehow he arrived at the number 722,500 as days. And he added to the number or the date of April, thir- uh, April 1st, 33 AD, which is the date that he thought Jesus Christ died on the cross. So adding it up, he will reach this date, particular date, and you might remember this if you were in L.A. or in other parts of the world in America while this has been proclaimed. May 21st, 2011. That was the date when Jesus is supposed to come back again. And then the world is to end October 21st, 2011. Well, as you know, as I know, we're still here, and that did not come. So what happened? Well, he's getting all donations from people and, and, and money given to them. Millions of dollars put on billboards up in the Midwest and other parts of the world and say, this is the day that Jesus is coming back again. And you know what? It made a mockery of God. It was also said that the one person possibly committed suicide because of this. Because he gained a worldwide following. He proclaimed this over and over and over again enough times that people believed unto him. But you know what? You know what? He's one of those people, as verse 7 says, desiring to be teachers of the law, but they don't have understanding what they're saying or the things which they make confident assertions. They have no idea. They have no idea. So what we're called to do is to be discerning because the reality does exist that there are false teachers in this world. You can't just walk into a place and hear someone talk about God and assume that everything it's going to be said that it's right. Maybe the person doesn't have right theology. Maybe the person is promoting himself instead of God. John warned us about this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Brothers or beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many false prophets who are teaching wrong theology about God, and you must be discerning. There is a healthy skepticism that you ought to have as a believer when you hear someone talk about God initially. And until you found out that this person is a true prophet of God, you should be discernful. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, it says, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and what? All discernment. You need to be discerning so that you may approve what is excellent so they be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, there are people in this world who are making Bible about them. They're twisting their message. They're making these days, these festivals, these obscure portions of a scripture which are in scripture about them, about their own influence, about their own agenda, about their own cult following, rather than about Christ. So Paul warned against this to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 17 saying, let no one pass judgment on you. In what? In questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath, for these are a shadow of things to come. But what? The substance belonged to Christ. Christ. The substance belonged to Christ. So what we see here, there's a false usage of Scripture. But as there's a false usage of Scripture, there's also a right one. And this is what we're going to see in verse 8 through 11, the right usage of Scripture. We see this in verse 8 to verse 11. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their father and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So as Paul is teaching us, that there is a false understanding, a twisted understanding of the Bible. There obviously also is the right understanding. The right understanding is, as we see in verse 8, the lawfully use of the law. He says, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. How do you use it lawfully? He continues on verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. You see, the law is laid down for us so that we may know that we are this, that we are the ungodly, that we are the sinners, that we are the unholy, and that we are the profane. See, the law of God magnifies that in our lives. It's not to say that before the law came, we didn't know that. We all live that way. We live our lives in such a way that we're covetous. We love our lives and we live our lives in such a way that we are uh, lustful. We live our lives in such a way we're selfish. But prior to knowing the law of God, prior to knowing God, we just thought that this is a normal way to live. This is just a way to get along with everybody, a way that you live while you're here in this world, that this is how everybody lives. But then when we come to know the law of God, we begin to know these are sins. We begin to develop a category in our minds that these are sins which actually offends the holy and the righteous God. That is by knowing the law of God, knowing what God actually says in the Bible. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul had a similar experience. He said, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been the law, I would not know sin. I would not even know what it means to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law tells us that coveting is sin. But I didn't know that. I just thought this is the way I'm supposed to live. But now I read the law, I know. And now I know that I'm in the judgment of God because God hates sin. In fact, we see how much God hates sin as we see in the Old Testament Scripture. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 21, it says, Behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. God is coming to judge the world for its iniquity. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is just and is wrathful against sin. But then the beauty of God is that not only is wrathful and just, he also is merciful. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. How can God, who is both wrathful and just, but also be merciful at the same time, how can that be true in one person? Well, as far as we read Scripture in the Old Testament, what we found out is that God does forgive sin, but it's at the heels of a sacrifice. So, for example, in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 26, it says, And all the fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offering, 
So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sins, and he shall be forgiven. There is forgiveness of God at the heel of a sacrifice. But we do know the sacrifices are not enough because my sins are even more abundant than all the sheep I may have. I may have five sheep, but I certainly have sinned more than five times. So you're going to outweigh your sacrifice in your sins. Then we found out that there's one true sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgression, that is, Christ was. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and this again was brought to fruition when he finally died on the cross for our sins. And we saw this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, in which he described Jesus as the one who was made sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's who Jesus is. Jesus became sin for us. And now as the law of God demonstrates that, that is the law of God demonstrates that we're sinners and that God's wrathful and then leads us to Christ because now we get to cry out to God for grace and mercy and now we have salvation. As a result of that, the law now has become a tutor, a guardian that leads us to Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. As law was our guardian... It really no longer is authority over us in the sense that we don't live by the law, but we live by the Spirit. This is something that's taught to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, the law leads us to Christ, but now we have the Holy Spirit in us, which is the law of God written in our hearts. And as we follow the Spirit, we will automatically and always fulfill the law of God that is required of us. That's why Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and it says against such things there is no law. See, we fulfill the law by following the Spirit. That is why Paul says in verse 9, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just. It's not for the just. We are no longer living by the law. We're not living by something external of us. We're living by something that's internal of us, our internal calling, our inter- internal uh, compelling of the Spirit. As we live by that, we are fulfilling God's requirement, fulfilling God's will for our lives. But before we get there, before we are in the place where we're fulfilling God's law in such a way in which we are under God's salvation, we need to know God's law for the purpose of repentance. We need to know what God requires. So Paul starts from the beginning. So the law is laid down, as verse 9 says, who strike the father and mothers. Now Paul is listing eight different sins here. Now this is not exhaustive. Certainly there are more than eight sins in the Bible. But these eight sins are listed in order of the Ten Commandments. So you have the fifth commandment here, which is honor your father and your mother. We see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, we're to honor our father and mother so that our days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving us. Well, I use us and you, but you know the point. We're to honor our father and mother. Of course, there are those who don't do that. The sin against the holy and the righteous God. Now, this is not talking about little kids not honoring their father and mother. This is talking about adults who do not honor their father and mother because the honor is not just speaking respectfully, but rather is to take care of them. 
And as you know, as parents grow old, they become slower, they become sicker, they're not as fast. And so those adult kids are thinking, you know what, my parents are in the way of my life. So I'm not going to honor them, I'm going to just ignore them, put them in a place where I never talk to them. And some even strike them because they feel like they're in the way. Those who strike the father and mother. And according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 15, they shall be put to death. That is the punishment of God for violating this commandment of God. And those who violate this commandment of God certainly is condemnable before God. If they know that they're condemnable before God, then they need to cry out to God for grace and mercy in the gospel. That's Paul's point. But before he gets there, he lists the second sin, which is sin of murder. We see this in verse 9. You should not murder. This is the sixth commandment. The sixth, that is, commandment. The commandments after striking or not honoring the father and mother. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. But we also know that murder is not something that happens externally outside of us in the sense of physical murder. Murder is something which we could have in our own hearts against another brother or sister in the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, you've heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, by merely hating another person, we murder them in our hearts. And we violated this commandment of God, and we are condemnable before God. Another reason to cry out to God for mercy and grace in the gospel. And there is a sin of sexual immorality. This is against the seventh commandment, which is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, that says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, we know adultery is a sin which is committed when a marriage vow is broken, when a marriage vow is broken in the sense that sexual activity has occurred outside the confines of that marriage. But we also know that adultery is not something that could be done just externally. Something can be done internally. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So anyone can commit adultery. Even single people can commit adultery just by having lustful thoughts about another person. If you've done that, and most people have, in fact, probably all people have, another reason to commit ourselves to the mercy of God because this, again, is in violation of God's command also, on top of that, there, verse 10, those who practice homosexuality. Homosexuality is a sin in which sexual activity is committed or a life pattern of sexual committed, committee or activity is done between two people of the same biological gender. It's a sin of sexual immorality as forbidden by the seventh commandment in Scripture. God's made men for women and women for men. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, we see this clearly. The rib that God had made, what God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God made man for woman, a woman for man. He also said in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That is God's command. Now I know that in light of that, the many people who struggle with same-sex attraction that's the fallen nature of man. Some struggle with that temptation. 
and some don't. But the reality is still stand true. It's a temptation that leads to sin. And when you sin against God in such a way, your life is condemnable before God. And we all need to cry out to God for mercy and grace and repentance in light of that. And there are enslavers. We see in verse 10. Those who enslave, this is in violation of the Eighth Commandment, which is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. See, there are people who kidnap others. This word literally means to steal another man. They're man-stealers. It's talking about taking another man from whatever place that they're at and making them a slave in a foreign place. This actually speaks against American slavery, which literally is man-stealing. It's condemned. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. See, what happened in the days of Ephesus, and Ephesus was a major port city as Corinth was, people were coming in and out. If you have a kid, you didn't watch your kid, the kid is in the marketplace, or someone's found your kid, your kid could be stolen. And all of a sudden, your kid just sold off to another person in the slave market. Paul says, if you've done that, if you've found possession, possession, that is, of another kid that's been sold to you, you're an enslaver. You're condemnable before God. And there are liars and perjurers. We see this in verse 10. This is in violation of the ninth commandment. And the ninth commandment is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. If you lie, you bear false witness you are condemnable before God. And in verse 10, it says this, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. If you teach anything else, if you obey anything else other than sound doctrine, you're a false prophet. You're also condemnable before God. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 21, in this passage, God condemned false prophets. God says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. There are those who are saying, God says the Lord, God said this, but God did not say so God said, I hate them. They're in violation of my commands. I'm going to judge them. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 30, it says, Therefore, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steals my words from one another. So we see all these forbiddance by God, all these laws which condemns us. And the point isn't that we'll be condemned before God as the end goal, but rather we'll cry out to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Cling to the mercy of God. Because Paul says in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He wants people to know that the end of the law is Christ. That we were to look at Jesus and say, I have failed horribly short of God's commandments and God's requirements. I'm under the wrath of God, but now I get to have Jesus as my Lord and Savior who is the substitute for my sins. That is the gospel. The gospel is, again, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. That is the gospel. And before we get to the gospel, we must know that we have violated the holy commandments of God. I remember when I was in college, I had a wonderful opportunity to meet a man. His name was Ray Comfort. I went to his place and got a book signed by him. And he was one of the pioneers in sharing the gospel in a way that really helped us to understand that the reason why 
people don't believe in the gospel is because they have not known the need to believe in the gospel. They don't believe in the gospel because they have not understood that defend the holy and the righteous God. So if you look him up, he says, you know, you need to share the gospel this way, at least the principle of it. And I absolutely agree with them. He says, you need to let them know that the sin against the holy and the righteous God first before you tell them that God loves them. As I go out there to Hollywood Boulevard, I tell them, hey, Jesus loves you and give them a tract. I mean, hopefully they'll read the tract, but if they didn't read the tract, they might just think that Jesus loves them because Jesus wants them to have a wonderful life here on earth, to help them be prosperous, help them to have money, help them to have a good successful job, help them to have houses and, and different things. And that's how Jesus loves them. But Jesus did not love them in such a way. The way Jesus loves us is because he had paid for our sins on the cross. That's how he loves us. But they don't recognize that because they did not see their need. So Ray Comfort will go to the person and say, hey, uh, stranger on the street, hey, what happens after you die? Do you think that you're going to heaven or do you think you're going to hell? Or the person, if you didn't know the gospel, or the person just speaking out, uh, just having a conversation and he doesn't really understand the gospel, he will say, well, you know, I think I'm going to heaven. Why do you think that? Well, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. Oh, you think a good person? Oh, good, good. Oh, you know the Ten Commandments, which God requires of us? Sure. I know the Ten Commandments. Okay, so one of the commandments is this. You should not steal. Have you ever stolen? So very comfort to ask, and, and the person would say, well, um, not really, but you know what? When I was a kid, I, I probably stole like a candy bar here and there. So you did steal. Yeah, yeah, I, I stole. So if you stole, that will make you a... A sinner, but a, a thief. Make you a thief. And ask the question, well, have you ever lied? Well, not horrible lies, but white lies here and there. So if you lie, then by your admittance, you are a liar. Have you ever looked at a woman or man with lustful intent? Well, who hasn't? I mean, everybody has. So that makes you what? And Jesus actually said this, if you looked at a person with lustful eyes, you're a doctor at the heart. So are you a doctor? It's like, I guess I'm a doctor at the heart. So by your own mission, you are a thief, liar, and a doctor. Why do you still think that you go to or deserve to go to heaven? And the person says, well, I, I guess I, I, I don't. And that's when you share the gospel. That's when you tell, hey, you're a sinner who do not deserve to go to heaven. But you know what? There's a person who paid for that sin for you, and his name was Jesus. He made a way for you. He made it possible for you. He died on the cross for you. He gave his perfect righteousness to you. If you believe unto him, that's how you know you're going to heaven. See, now the person understands. See, one of the reasons why people don't understand the gospel or don't believe in the gospel. And, and, and I'm not saying that we all need to share the gospel with people in this way. I think there are a variety of ways in which you could share the gospel but gets the same point across. But people need to know they sin against the holy and the righteous God. Because as John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, there are people who say we have no sin. And they're deceiving themselves. And the truth is not in them. Yes, it's easy for people to say they have no sin, but they do have sin. They just don't recognize that. It's, help, it's helpful for us. We need to show them that they've sinned against the holy and righteous God. God was holy, who is, as Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, a purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. That's who God is. 
So if we know that's who God is, then the next step is to cry out to God for mercy and grace because God promises to give mercy and grace to those who cry out to him. Psalm chapter 51, verse 1, we see David cry out to God in such a way, and we're to cry out to God also in such a way, to have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And if we do so, God will blot out your transgressions. That is the gospel. Do you love this? Do you love these characters, characteristics of God? It's who God is. That's why the psalmist cries out in Psalm chapter 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. It's my meditation all the day. Why do we meditate upon God's law and love him? It's because we see God's holiness, God's justice, God's grace, and God's mercy all displayed in God's law. So we love God. We have affection for God for who he is. And sharing the gospel with others is simply worship. I talked about this in our evangelism Bible study. Evangelism is bringing worship to another person. That's what it is. It's to cause another person to worship. And the reason why and the how we do so is because we want another person to see all the glory of God, his grace, his mercy, but really his holiness and justice. Certainly, when you go to a person on the street, there's a process for that. And I think the comfort method, the Ray comfort method is a great method. And I think that's, that, that's a great method to approach another person and say, hey, do you know that you have sinned against the holy and the righteous God? And here's how. And here's how you could be redeemed. But even with our family and friends, I think there's a conversation that needs to be had. You might offend them. I'm not saying that you should go to another person and say, hey, you. Say to your dad or your mom or your family and friend, you're a lying thief, adulterer. I'm not saying you should do that. Um, uh, perhaps that's necessary. If you want to do that, uh, perhaps I would convict them. But I do believe that there are opportunities for you to do that. Paul did say in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. So perhaps there's an opportunity for that. But you do need to somehow communicate that to another person to let them know, yes, they are thieves. They are murderers, and they are liars at heart, and they need the gospel. They need to see the very fact that God's holy and just, and that's why, and that's how they can also so see that God's gracious and merciful. I think about the wonderful story, Jonah. See, Jonah was a person who was a reluctant, reluctant prophet. He didn't really want to share the gospel. He didn't want to go to the Ninevites and tell people about God, but when he did, the man was faithful. He told them fully who God is, about the holiness and the judgment of God. And somehow the Ninevites also knew about the mercy of God because they did cry out to God for mercy and ask God, perhaps if they mourn and they put sackcloth on, that God will not destroy them. And God didn't. God had mercy upon them. The same also is with us. You see, we're faithfully proclaiming to others the holiness, the justice, the mercy, and the grace of God. And God will take it from there. To some, we're the aroma of life. To others, we're the aroma of death. But we don't get to determine that. We know who God is in our lives. We know that we love the Lord. We know that our heart is according to Psalm chapter 119, verse 97, which is that we love God. We love his laws. We love his character. And we also want others to feel the same. That is why we tell people about Jesus. Amen? 
Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for this message. We're grateful that we're challenged by uh, you here and, and really a good review of what the gospel is. We pray for anybody here who does not know your word, know your gospel, if they had the wrong perception of you, that this clears in their mind, clarifies for them what the gospel is, and that we would point to Jesus in our own hearts, that we would believe unto him with all of our hearts in the right way, that we would surrender our lives to Christ because he has lived and died and rose again for us to pay for our sins. And if we have opportunities for the gospel, we pray that we'll bravely share this with others, that we would not hesitate to tell people that God is the holy and righteous God because that is the necessary path for their salvation. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you apply the message to our hearts according to the way which we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.